On this week's edition of New York Now, Hochul hints at her state of the state. We'll discuss. Then, what's next for the New York Working Families Party? State Director Sochi Nemica joins us. And later, New York is getting a new chief judge. We'll have a preview, plus a new edition of On the Bill. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We're now less than a month out from Governor Kathy Hochul's State of the State Address, and we already have some clues on what will be in it. Hochul joined New York City Mayor Eric Adams at an event this week put on by the group A Better New York, or ABNY. It's an economic development nonprofit. And both Hochul and the mayor laid out a few ideas for boosting the city's economy and culture. But both said that's easier said than done. New York City still hasn't fully recovered the number of jobs lost during the pandemic, according to the State Department of Labor. But as those jobs come back, New York has another problem, its housing crisis. And that's something that Hochul says she'll have a plan for next month. So the jobs are there, the housing is not. And that's why in my upcoming State of the State address, I will put forth a comprehensive housing plan. And within this, it will include the building of 800,000 new units of housing over the next decade, and I want to make it sooner than that. And then on Thursday, Hochul spoke to reporters at the state capitol. Let's get into that and more with Josh Solomon from the Times Union. Josh, thank you for coming in. No problem. So you asked the governor, uh, she was talking about a lot of different things. It was a combo winter storm warning and then a reflection on kind of her first 18 months or so in office. Um, we were talking about housing right before this. You asked her about something called good cause eviction. It's a, it's a bill that, um, it's a little bit more complicated than I want to get into on the air, but it's a bill that would basically force landlords to have a good cause to evict someone, and those causes are listed in the legislation. We don't have to get into it. Um, any indication on where she stands? She was very committed to not committing on the issue, yeah. uh, which she typically does on legislation, so it's not out of the ordinary for her to kind of avoid taking a hard stance on it, but we know that the, the reason it's important to find out where she is on it is because we know that this is going to be the most important piece of legislation for progressives. And following an election where uh, progressives weren't necessarily motivated to go out and vote and, and the governor's figuring out how to make her coalition in the legislature, and they still have supermajorities, mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting to see how much she gives room to an extremely progressive piece of legislation or a leg piece of legislation that progressives love. And the big piece of it that is controversial is... Some would argue it includes a piece of rent stabilization in it, which proponents of it say no, but that's kind of where it becomes really difficult. Right. This has been a few years of trying to negotiate a, a very, um, very thin line between what uh, property owners like about it, they don't really like anything about it, and what renters like about it, particularly progressives, you're right. Um, that's just one of these housing issues for her state of the state that I want to get into a little bit. Um, before we got in there, you mentioned that she doesn't really mention a lot about affordable housing just yet. Um, I, I'm really curious because 
Last year in her state of the state, she made a, a very big focus on housing in terms of affordable housing, supportive housing, and I'm curious about where she takes it from here. Anything in your crystal ball? <laughs> uh, the crystal balls, well, the governor during a housing conference speech uh, a couple weeks ago in Manhattan gave what she called a trailer to the movie, and the movie being the state of the state on January 10th. Mm. And she said repeatedly, housing's gonna be the top priority. And she's calling it housing. And she, at this speech, she started off saying, last year we did $25 billion over five years for 100,000 homes, but specifically under the umbrella of affordable housing. Now we're talking about broad sweeping housing policy, anywhere from creating a state's office to help with planning for housing and have more of a comprehensive look at it yeah to zoning in the suburbs which they're particularly concerned about in terms of the rate of building housing so that not only are they concerned about the building of housing and the zoning behind it but they're also concerned about access to that housing for whom how workforce housing the whole gambit i mean we're going to really see a, a a big pitch on it. When you talk about housing in the suburbs, uh, does that include accessory dwelling units, which is a, <laughs> it's basically the option for somebody to convert their property into a home for somebody. A lot of people use the example of a uh, an aging parent who needs somewhere to live. Um, that got into a little bit of a mess last year. I don't really know what's up with it. Have you covered that? I, I have, and if you hear the words ADU, accessory, accessory dwelling unit, know that you're hearing a very politically charged term. Yeah, which is, I didn't, I didn't know about this until before last year. I didn't know that it was so controversial of a thing. Why is it controversial? Well, there's, there seems to be some distaste in the suburbs, particularly in Westchester and Long Island, of do we allow this? And rather, who should allow it? Mm. And, and it really goes back to like a question of home rule on zoning and whether or not we should change, the state should change its policy on is the state going to say this is allowed by right because we're so concerned about the threat of a housing crisis that we need to create more housing, whether it be for a grandmother, for a recent college grad, or for you know a young person coming to, a, to the community and, and wanting to commute into the city through Metro North or something, right? Mm -hmm. Folks, it, it may less be that that is the issue, and it's more so we should decide it. Let us decide home by home by home at local zoning boards, local planning boards, and that's how we control what our community looks like, and that's what we pay taxes for, and, and that's what we deserve a right to do. It's an interesting issue, and it came up and seemed to be gaining some steam last year, and then was it, it was like tennis. The ball came over, and, and the interest against it, which <laughs> it vanished very quickly last year. It was just one of those things that Hochul seemed to go really strong on and then not, and then kind of like a man out of the wayside. Um, we have about a minute left. Uh, the governor made some interesting comments regarding the state's finances heading into next year as well, saying that, you know, last year it was looking good. This year, we don't really know. What do you get from that? Well, she took a lot of heat from progressives last year that yeah. who wanted her to spend down all of the one-time money that they were getting from the federal government on really important issues from home care to health care to child care. And she spent some of the money on it, but not all of the money. She kept it in reserves. And 
And that reserve money, what the governor is saying so far, is hopefully going to pad the landing regarding any potential mild recession. And they're hoping that that'll preserve them from any having to institute a tax hike or something of that nature. But it's still very early. Right. And she did say also that she is uh, not, well, I don't remember quite how she phrased it. She does not foresee any tax increases, which will probably upset progressives who are looking for higher taxes on the wealthy, as we will get into later in the show. So stick around. But for now, thank you so much, Josh Solomon from the Times Union. We'll leave it there. All right, turning now to New York politics. When you head to the polls each November, you might notice that a candidate's name is on multiple party lines. Republicans will often also be on the conservative line, and Democrats will sometimes also run on the Working Families Party line. It's a national party, but it was founded right here in New York in 1998. And since then, progressives have found a home in the WFP. Fast forward to today, and the WFP holds a lot of power in New York, especially among Democrats. So it was no surprise that the party played a big role in this year's elections, organizing around progressive Democrats in key races. For more on that, we caught up this week with Sochi Nemica, the state director of the New York Working Families Party. Sochi, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. So glad to be on with you, Dan. So I want to start with last month's elections. You had a really big number last month in the race for governor specifically. So looking at 2018, Andrew Cuomo got about 114,000 votes on the WFP line. This year, Governor Kathy Hochul got 250,000 votes, more than double. Why do you think that is? Well, we've been proud to hit the ground running with a coalition of Democrats up and down the state uh, to really speak to the values of working families. And this year, uh, with Governor Hochul at the top of our ticket, we also used this opportunity to talk to voters about what mattered most of them, uh, increased housing affordability, investing in public education, take down the climate crisis real uh, head on. And we find that when people are connected to the values behind their vote, they're more persuaded to uh, come out and vote. And so that's been our strategy in the past couple of years. Uh, we're glad that we're increasing the number of people who vote on the Working Families Party line, whether they're Democrats, or working families, or unaffiliated voters. Uh, and we look forward to continuing to see those totals get bigger uh, over the years ahead. You know, at the same time, Republicans did make some ground in some key areas of the state, like Long Island and the lower Hudson Valley, some area, other areas as well. I'm wondering, because I think your party is probably the furthest away from the Republican ideology, their values. Uh, does that concern you at all, that we see this Republican surge in those areas? What was clear is that Republicans fought tooth and nail for their votes. They came out organized and quite rabid, honestly, in this political moment, determined to pull people towards their program. Unfortunately, their program was one of fear-mongering without much solutions, uh, but we know that there are real visceral responses that voters do come out, uh, whether it is crime, whether it is um, rising costs, there are those kind of gut responses that do move voters. And what Democrats need to do, and working families Democrats in particular need to do in response, is put out a vision and a program, right? That if we want to address public safety, people know also viscerally that safe housing and youth programs and accessible transit also address public safety. And so we have to ensure that we're not seeding the ground to fear-mongering and dog whistles that do bring a base out, but that often leave people feeling more cynical, less trustful, and more alienated from their communities. 
Yeah, it does feel like there is a uh, sort of divide on messaging between a, a lot of different parties, a lot of different individuals. Uh, I think Republicans did, as you said, a very, very good job campaigning. I think that they did a great job getting to the people who they thought would vote for them, whereas Democrats, I think, took some of their races for granted. I mean, when you look at uh, two years from now, when we don't have a race for governor, but we do have a race for president, what does your strategy look like then? How do you get through to these voters, as you were saying, that just don't seem to want to budge on certain issues? What we feel good about is that Democratic campaigning, thankfully, was not a monolith. And so you see people, for example, like Leah Webb, who is a new state senator joining a, co a coalition of working families, Democrats, from the new seat in the Binghamton, Ithaca area, uh, who really had an organizing first strategy, talking to voters in very different parts of her district with, with shared messaging about shared values. Sarahana Shrestha, who also just won an assembly seat in the Hudson Valley, did it by doggedly knocking on every single door in her district that also spanned from rural areas to Kingston and places in between. We're going to hit the ground running starting on you know January 1st, 2023 for those 2024 congressional seats. We have to ensure that we're sending a New York State delegation that has working people's interest front and center. And that means flipping those seats that were lost in the cycle because the cycle was a fluke. We are sure about it. And we have to be organizing to ensure that that fluke does not lead into long-term disastrous policies for working people in New York State. So as we mentioned, the votes for your party just keep going up. So that means that you have more power in elections. It also means that you have more power at the state capitol as more Democrats get onto your line, as more people recognize that your line exists. What do you want to see lawmakers do with these big wins that your party organized and, and helped deliver? I definitely see our power coming from our membership. We are grounded and anchored in the fact that we know that working people share a common agenda and it's government that has to meet the people where they're at. And so we're hitting uh, the floor in Albany to push for invest in our New York, right? Raising taxes on the wealthy to invest in the common good, to fully fund education and invest in CUNY and SUNY, to address the climate crisis head on uh, through the Build Public Renewables Act and other big climate measures, uh, and to raise the wage for all working people, including home health uh, workers. And so with that broad, popular working people's agenda. We want to build the power that reflects what communities want up and down the state and deliver for them in New York, especially in this moment when at the national level, we're assuming Republicans are going to be pretty obstructionist uh, in the House of Representatives. New York has to lead the way. Do you see the legislature moving more towards the priorities that are aligned with the WFP rather than some of the more establishment positions, especially as, as you win uh, more races with candidates that I think were more focused on the WFP than being on the Democratic line? I think the energy has been growing and mounting and the cries have been louder, right? We've all been saying that the housing crisis must be top on the list because that's what voters are saying and that really affects people across all lines of difference geography race age uh, and we're seeing governor hochul saying on day one we're going to be tackling the housing crisis um we're seeing the call for greater investments uh we're recognizing that two years after raising taxes on the ultra wealthy there has not been any of the right-wing talking points about billionaire flight and uh economic crumble right none of those things have happened and so every year's progress gets 
made uh, and our agendas become more popular, uh, we see the coalition get bigger and we start to deliver more. And so that's what we're focused on next year, delivering more with and for working people. All right, well, we will see how it shakes out. Session starts in January. Sochi Nemeka, the State Director of the New York Working Families Party, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Be well. And the WFP and other advocacy groups are already rallying around what they're calling the Invest in Our New York campaign ahead of next year's legislative session. It's a package of bills that would enact new tax hikes on wealthy New Yorkers and large corporations and use that money to fund services like education and health care. Carolyn Martinez class is with the advocacy group Citizen Action. These are all things that should be reflected in our budgets. If we treat budgets as moral documents, if we treat them as the state's priorities, then we have to be making investments in our people who have sustained our economy, who have sustained us through the pandemic, and who are now suffering from unequal uh, recovery. Next year's legislative session is scheduled to start the first week of January. But moving on now to a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're doing something a little different and talking about the Bottle Bill. That's a law enacted in the 80s that advocates say needs an update. It's actually the law that allows you to take your cans and bottles and redeem them for five cents each. But a lot of people don't know that not all bottles and cans can be redeemed. And a group of environmental advocates have been calling on lawmakers for years now to change that. They want more containers to be covered under the law so people can redeem them and they'll get recycled. They also want the deposit raised from five cents to 10 cents. Erica Smitka from the League of Women Voters of New York State is one of the advocates calling for that change. We are already seeing the effects of climate change in our state with an increase in extreme temperatures, extreme storms, adverse health effects, and stress on our ecosystems. And according to the Department of Environmental Conservation, waste is accountable for 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions in New York State. So modernizing a bill that would reduce, would increase recycling and reduce litter should be a no-brainer. It's something that's been on the table for several years now without much action, so we'll see if that changes next year. In the meantime, Governor Kathy Hochul now has less than a week to announce her pick for a new chief judge. That's after former Chief Judge Janet DeFiori resigned over the summer. Since then, an independent state commission has put together, by law, a short list of candidates for the job. And it's an important one. The Chief Judge of New York literally manages an entire branch of state government, the state court system. And they also lead the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals. It's a big job that could have a big impact on the state. And for a preview, I spoke this week with Brian Ginsburg, an appellate attorney who's argued at the Court of Appeals and a partner at the law firm Harris Beach. Brian, thank you so much for coming on this week. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. So we now have the list, the short list of finalists for our new chief judge in New York. I want to see your takeaways first. Uh, what did you think of the list? Well, my takeaway is that it's a very impressive list of finalists that the Commission on Judicial Nomination has put together, um, folks from diverse professional backgrounds, all of whom, in my view, have uh, ample judicial skills and temperament to do the job of adjudicating cases on the Court of Appeals, and also uh, all, all the folks who have um, 
uh, a variety of different types of managerial experience leading different types of large organizations, in some cases uh, very busy appellate courts, uh, who would be well suited to do the managerial work uh, of the chief judge as well. And the, of course, the official title there is not simply chief judge of the Court of Appeals, but chief judge of the state of New York. Uh, and any of the folks on this impressive short list would be well poised uh, to lead the New York State Unified Court System. Yeah, we have seven different people with seven very different career trajectories in some cases. Uh, I'm wondering if anybody stood out to you in particular on this list. I, I mean, to me, you have uh, Hector LaSalle, the presiding justice from the Appellate Division, Second Department, downstate. Um, that one jumped out to me, but I'm curious to see if anybody uh, you think has a better chance than others. It's hard for me to pick a front runner based on this list. I mean, Justice LaSalle is certainly very impressive. Uh, as are the other six members of the list. I think really in each of the candidates' own way, they bring, they make a very compelling case uh, for uh, being nominated and confirmed as the next chief judge of the state of New York. Now, how do you think this changes the court over, you know, we don't know how long this person would serve. Of course, it would depend sort of on their age. There's a mandatory retirement age of 70 for judges in New York State. So we don't know how long this person would be in the position. But can you describe for our viewers who are kind of new to this, uh, what kind of um, impact a new chief judge has on the court system and the Court of Appeals? Well, I think a new chief judge uh, could really have a profound impact on the Court of Appeals. The chief judge, like all judges of the Court of Appeals, gets a vote in deciding cases that come before the court, ruling for one side or the other. Also importantly, the chief judge, uh, like the other judges, gets a vote as to what cases the court decides to accept in the first place. The Court of Appeals, uh, unique among courts in the state of New York, decides what cases it wants to decide. And unlike on uh, for cases adjudicated on the merits, where it generally takes four votes to, uh, to rule in favor of one side, in terms of filling up the court's docket, it only takes the vote of two judges, and in the criminal context, only one judge uh, to place a case on the Court of Appeals docket for later decision through a process called granting leave. And there are no bright line rules uh, for when leave should or should not be granted. It's really uh, in the eye of the beholder to a large extent. And for that reason, uh, the next chief judge, in addition to having a large impact on the cases that come before the court, will have a very large impact um, on deciding what cases come before the court in the first place. You know, you're a practicing attorney, obviously, a partner at Harris Beach. What do you think are the major challenges for a chief judge coming into the state court system right now? We've just come out of a, a global pandemic that affected the courts quite a bit. Um, we've also seen the chief judge, former chief judge Janet DeFiori kind of change the trajectory of the Court of Appeals in certain ways, but also have some major initiatives for the state court system. Um, so what do you think should be this person's priorities coming in? Well, I certainly think from a programmatic standpoint, the next chief judge, like the prior chief judge, uh, we'll have to focus a lot on sort of system-wide issues, uh, making sure that the courts and courthouses are accessible to all, uh, making sure um, that New Yorkers, uh, no matter what uh, their stature, have adequate access to justice. But I think beyond that, the next chief judge, um, again, like the prior chief judge, 
uh, will have the main duty of ensuring uh, that cases are decided according to the rule of law. And in my view, I think the prior chief judge, Chief Judge DeFiori, did an excellent job of that. And I think any one of the candidates on the shortlist would do an excellent job of that as well, deciding cases that come before them based upon an application of the law to the facts without regard for external factors like power or politics or popularity. Yeah, one issue that has come up during the selection process is that a lot of uh, advocates would like to see the governor nominate a new chief judge who has some practice in defense rather than prosecution. We do see a number of judges on that bench right now have a history of prosecution rather than defense. Uh, what do you think about that as somebody who is familiar with this court? How would that change it? Well. I think that it's obviously Governor Hochul's prerogative to nominate whomever on the short list she feels would make the best chief judge of the state of New York. But I reject the view advanced by some uh, interest groups that folks who have prior experience as prosecutors or who have, uh, for those folks who have, uh, who are already serving in judicial roles, have decided certain cases in certain ways are in some sense preemptively disqualified from becoming the next chief judge, from being nominated or confirmed. In my view, uh, judges often have to make unpopular decisions. Their job is to apply the law to the facts wherever that may lead. And uh, uh, excellence in a prior uh, position as a prosecutor, uh, I, I don't believe would impact uh, the judge's ability to apply the, the law to the facts in a straightforward way um, on the Court of Appeals. I think all of these candidates have a variety of backgrounds. Some who have prosecutorial experience also have experience on the defense side, and there are other folks who have experience outside the practice of law entirely. I think whoever is selected um, will bring that important professional diversity uh, to the chief judge role. All right, we will see how it shakes out. Brian Ginsburg, an appellate attorney and a partner at Harris Beach, thank you so much. Thank you. Hochul has until next Friday to announce her choice. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.